All right. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this, uh, this webinar. It's a special treat. We've got Dr. Choi with us today. He is a, uh, an accomplished chiropractor in his own right, uh, turned uh, uh, biomechanical expert, and we are very excited to have him here uh, talking about the, uh, the differences uh, between those two things and how he got from one to the other. So uh, with uh, no other introduction, uh, welcome, Dr. Choi. Thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you for having me. Dr. Choi, before we get started here, we're, tight, we're, we're doing a major experiment. We got Alex Eisner here. You can tell he's in the center of the picture. I can't move him out of this chair. So we're going to let him try to run this show, but you guys had a case together. A, it would be nice if we could see some animation. I bet you thought about that, didn't you, young Alex? But secondly, we've got a great penetrating question uh, that we got from a doctor, which, by the way, going forward for our future us. Uh, uh, what are we? These are not webinar, webinars, are they? Well, we used to Zoom. call them our, our, PI, our, our PI teleconferences, but we've moved to a Zoom platform. I think this is better. Okay, yeah, I like it. I like it much better. Uh, doctors, we, we do have a specialist here that is something that we have used, uh, worked with professionally. It's something that we need to know a lot about biomechanics. And by the way, you're all taught that in colleges. And so m many of you certainly can testify to the biomechanical damages on patients in PI cases. It's important. Dr. Choi's taken it up several levels, and so now he's working with different attorneys, putting on demonstrable uh, evidence and cases together that helps us. Uh, during this, we want you to send us uh, email, seansteel.com. Next time you can have Alex's email, but that'll be after he earns it. <clears throat> so ask me any question during the seminar. Uh, we'll get it uh, answered. You can also press the one button on your phone and uh, you can also intrude. No, you can't. Not anymore. Oh, not anymore. So you can do it on Zoom. You can write a question. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. In the chat room, you can certainly do that. Uh, and then it's, we're going to keep it to 30 minutes as we always promise to get you out of here quickly. It's what, and then Alex, cause he's really nice today is going to have a video copy of this. Yeah. Yeah. We'll post it on, uh, we'll post it on YouTube hopefully. And also on our website. Yeah. What is our website? SeanSteele.com. Oh, that's great. That's my name. That's your name. Okay, good. Very good. It's all, it's all right back here, too. Yeah. Okay, yeah, in case you miss it. Yeah. So I'm going to step out of the picture, literally. Let's see if Alex does a good job. Why don't you tell me secretly uh, on email that I'll see. He won't see it. Tell me how he's doing. Give him a rating of 1 to 10, and I appreciate it. It's like a pain Thanks. scale. Yeah. <laughs> well, Doctor, thanks again for being here. I, I, I wondered if you couldn't start by giving us a, something of a history and a, and a definition. If you could maybe define biomechanics, biomechanical engineering, uh, what it takes to be a biomechanical expert, and then your qualifications and how you got into it. Okay, well, just to clarify uh, some stuff, first of all, if you are a biomechanical uh, expert, uh, the notion that you have to be an engineer is absolutely false. So right now, currently, the vast majority of uh, biomechanical experts are engineers. However, uh, the notion that you have to be an engineer to be a biomechanical expert is not true. So uh, that, you know, that comes with the genesis of how biomechanics actually even came across. Um, if you actually look historically, it was uh, the healthcare profession that actually brought upon biomechanics in the industry today. Uh, 19th century orthopedic surgeons and obstetricians were actually engaged in biomechanics uh, like in 1980, uh, 1880, German orthopedic surgeon named Otto Messner, he actually published the first biomechanical uh, article. Uh, it was in German, but roughly translated, it means uh, elasticity and strength, about the tensile uh, strength of uh, fetuses when they're being pulled out of the womb during birth. 
I mean, that was the genesis of, uh, uh, around that time was the genesis of biomechanics. Uh, 19, 1874, British Medical Journal, that was the one with the tensile strength. Um, there's other, uh, no, right. so um, actually the 1880 report was actually about, um, about uh, orthopedists where they experimented with um, cadavers breaking bones and then figuring out how to, uh, you know, uh, what was the best method of fixing them. So uh, biomechanics started way back uh, in the late 1800s. And um, even in 1919, there's a doctor, medical doctor, Marshall, and he published in the Boston Medical Journal, uh, neck injuries uh, due to low or mild uh, automobile crashes. And keep in mind, back then, uh, automobiles didn't have the head restraints that we have today. So back then, you know, and you'll, I'd like to show a couple of videos of low impact collisions um, a little bit later, but uh, even at crashes less than 10 miles per hour, you can see how dynamic uh, the collisions are. And with the absence of head restraints, people were, were receiving catastrophic injuries because of that. So let me, let me ask you, how, how, did, how did you get, end up getting into this? Well, uh, over a decade ago, um, uh, you know, I just started to um, uh, go to different seminars. You know, I, I treated a lot of uh, different types of uh, uh, patients, but, you know, I was focusing on personal injury patients. And, you know, many times, I'm sure many of you chiropractic experience today that your case gets denied for whatever reason that the, uh, the carriers uh, use. And a lot of times I basically, what I did was uh, I rebutted the letters. I asked the, law, the attorneys, I said, hey, can you send me those denial letters? I'd like to look at it and rebut it. And I'd rebut it. And typically the, the response is, hey, I'm sorry, you're not an expert witness. You don't qualify to opine on these issues. So then I re uh, reply, you know, hey, uh, do you guys qualify to talk about patients' injuries? And basically what happens, they ignore it. So, you know, I just said, you know, uh, I'm just going to get certified in this type of stuff. So in 2008, I got certified in whiplash biomechanics. And in 2009, I got certified in uh, accident reconstruction. Okay, so you were a chiropractor, then you got certified in accident reconstruction biomechanics. G give me a little, uh, a little bit of background for, for maybe m myself or any of the doctors who, who might not know. What's the difference between defining injuries, uh, you know, as a chiropractor would, as, as, a, as a diagnosis, uh, versus defining injuries biomechanically? Right, it's just, it's, I guess you could say that you're basically going more detail into uh, analyzing a person's injury. Like for example, how many of us take x-rays? I mean, the vast majority of chiropractors take x-rays. When you take a lateral view of an x-ray, you see uh, localized degenerative changes between the C5, C5, uh, C5, C6 vertebrae, uh, where you see some DJD there, but the other joints look fine. I can tell you right now that that person at one point or another suffered some type of acceleration, deceleration injury, AKA whiplash because it is typically on the vast majority of uh, the population that's out there, um, the axis of rotation when your head is moving forwards and backwards is the, the center of rotation is between C5 and C6. So when you suffer whiplash, that area gets damaged more than the other areas and it undergoes premature DJD. So you know, analyzing an x-ray right, right off the bat when you see localized DJD, that's typically caused by 
some type of trauma in the past. But if you have a patient that just came into your office and you're actually analyzing them, uh, MRI is a great way to uh, determine what the biomechanical factors are in a personal injury case that involves motor vehicle collision. Like for example, you're driving, you get T-bone, your head snaps to uh, one side. Now keep in mind, the, the ligaments that house the vertebral bodies, right, they're physical barriers that prevent bulges from occurring. So when you have a lateral uh, bulge, and unfortunately, most radiologists, they don't really go in detail when it comes to reading x-rays about laterality. They just look at the side view, they measure how much it comes out, whether it's pushing on the cord or not. But if you can actually see that the bulge is paracentral to the right, in my case, my head snapped this way, what's going to happen is it's going to cause a stretching of the paraspinal ligaments on my right side, and you'll actually see the bulge paracentral to the right. Now, for younger people, say in their 30s, that typically don't have degenerative changes, so they're not going to have as much, uh, uh, you know, uh, bulging or whatnot. You see several bulges that are paracentral to the right, then you know it follows the biomechanics of that collision ve uh, vector. So that's one way to analyze a person's injury. Uh, number one. Number two. Um, another factor, like for example, you know, just typical whiplash, right? Your head snaps forward all the uh, posterior longitudinal ligaments, they uniformly stretch. So that's uh, when you see on an MRI, you see multiple small bulges in several different locations is another indicator that this was caused by some type of acceleration, deceleration injury. So when, is there anything that you're looking for in the chiropractic report uh, in terms of what, what chiropractors listening in on this sort of thing could be doing better uh, or noting specifically uh, is if they know a, a biomechanics expert uh, or, or, or you particularly are going to end up on that case that they should be looking for or noting, uh, or maybe they should just be looking for and noting in all of their PI cases uh, to try to bolster the, the, the liability picture and the, uh, the, the biomechanics picture. Right. So, so there, there's a ton of research out there that, um, uh, that, that you can utilize to uh, basically uh, input in your report uh, in a title, uh, if you're going to title it, title it mechanism of injury, because um, there's so much research out there. For example, like wearing a seatbelt. Yes, seatbelts definitely save lives, and we should all, we must all wear seatbelts. However, in lower impact collisions, because the typical, typical consumer vehicle that has a three-point harness, so if I'm a driver, What's going to happen is if you get rear-ended as you're going through phase three and you are going forward and the seatbelt catches, that will actually cause a torquing effect of your neck. And that actually increases soft tissue injuries. Um, that's one factor. And there's a lot of research behind it. Like I use a software called Titan, and basically it has a mechanism of injury section in there. And whatever you pick, it actually um, talks about that and tells you all the, uh, the article references that are on there. Um, uh, uh, you know, not being completely surprised. People who are surprised, actually, their head whips more, and therefore they're more prone to longer injuries and chronic effects. Um, so, wait, so just to touch on that, because that comes up in a lot of cases where the, they will ask, and, and it's worth noting maybe for the chiropractor to ask in, in the initial intake whether or not somebody was surprised by the accident, meaning they saw it coming or they didn't see it coming. You're saying that that can actually have an effect on the extent of the injuries, and that should be or could be commented on in the report. 
Right, absolutely. But keep in mind that's a that's a two-edged sword because in lower impact collisions, if you're not aware of what's going on and you're completely surprised of it, your 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 jerk is gonna be much greater and therefore you're gonna have greater injury, more likely to have chronic injury. However, the other side is if it's a high high impact collision where you know you're exceeding a certain uh, speed limit and you actually see it coming and you tense up. Because in lower impact collisions, if you tense up and you're ready for it, then you reduce the amount of jerk. But if you're at a higher velocity collision, where you grab onto that steering wheel and you're jerking, that can actually cause broken bones. So that's why in higher uh, uh, velocity collisions where like, for example, like drunk drivers, you know, they get into a car wreck, everyone dies except for them because everyone else saw it coming, they held on. And while the car is going through the collision factors or it's rolling, they're tensed up, and as they're tensed up, their bones are breaking, and they end up dying. Whereas the drunk person is so drunk, it's like kind of like rolling with the punches, and they just flop around, and they end up surviving the uh, collision. So it kind of goes both ways, depending on what the speed of the collision was. Gotcha. All right. So let me. Something that comes up quite a lot, and I'm sure a lot of the docs are are, uh, are familiar with the term a mist case, a minor impact soft tissue case. Um, it sounds like this might be your bread and butter. I mean, this is something that you that you uh, are a specialist in, in in terms of coming in on cases that uh, are, are you know could be labeled missed, uh, and explaining how it is that just because the impact might have been minor, or the damages in dollars might have been minor, or the injuries might be soft tissue injuries don't doesn't mean that it's a low value case or it doesn't mean that the injuries aren't chronic or it doesn't mean that the injuries uh, can't have actually been uh, larger can you can you talk a little bit about uh, you know your work in, in low impact collisions and and, and how uh, how low impact collisions can still lead to uh, if they can uh, still lead to, to to damages right well you know as far as the speed of the collision what you know if it's considered deemed a low impact collision as far as the value of a case, that, you know, it's beyond me. But, uh, you know, I go more into whether the person can be injured or not. That's the important factor as a treating doctor. So, uh, there's, you know, ever since the turn of the century, basically what happened was different organizations like the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety kept increasing the speeds at which they do these collision tests. So, you know, when you look at a vehicle, there's three zones of crush. And the first zones are the two bumpers. So there you go, the two bumpers, right? And then there's the crumple zone, which is the trunk or the engine compartment. And then there's the cage where the occupant sits. Now, the the bumpers are stiff, and then the crush zones are, are soft, and then once again, the cage is stiff again. So as they kept increasing the speeds at which they do these collisions, they had to be able to absorb more energy before it got to the cage. And the cage is like the holy of holies. You know, you can't, if the cage gets compromised, dummies show the damage the, uh, the intrusion to the uh, cage, then the manufacturers get poor safety ratings. So now they're doing offset studies, uh, case crashes at like 40 miles per hour. So they have to keep stiffening up the bumper, uh, or stiffening up the bumpers because they're not gonna redesign the engine, right? I mean, that's a brand new uh, car. So during the turn of the century, they started add, adding things like energy absorbers that stiffened up, stiffened up, stiffened up the bumpers. Now they add like impact bars that really stiffen up the bumpers. And especially with the advent of electric cars with the batteries, the batteries are like Toyota and Tesla on the floor. 
these frames are almost indestructible. So I've seen collisions at 30 miles per hour where one car is completely like accordion in up to the windshield, while the other car, you could barely tell that there's even any type of damage on it. So what happens is when you do a teardown and the covers are designed so they just bounce back, they're like rubber covers, right? So it's really important for you to go beyond that and like the repairs, uh, you know, people that do the repairs event to, to do a teardown and look at the internal damage. Because when you have uh, uh, energy absorber damage or uh, uh, impact bar damage and literally from the outside it looks like there's no damage, but that's going to far exceed 10 miles per hour collisions. And when it exceeds 10 mile per hour collisions, you know, there's no question as to whether a person could be injured or not. So, and that, that brings up an interesting point. So we're doing all of this to determine the speed at which the collision may have occurred. But we, a lot of people have heard the term Delta V. Why don't you start by just tell us what a Delta V is and then, uh, and then why all of the, the you know, the, why, why is everybody so interested in what the Delta V value is in, a, in, an, in an accident? Right, okay. Well, okay, the reason why Delta V is so important when it comes to med legal is because there's been attempts by several different companies um, uh, that try to establish a quote-unquote threshold for injury. And basically what delta V means is uh, the change in velocity, right? So imagine if we will, just two cars. If this car is at a standstill and this car comes and hits it at say at 10 miles per hour, and this car from, from zero miles per hour goes to six miles per hour, speeds up to six miles per hour, that would have been a delta V of six miles per hour. Now, basically what happened is that, you know, if you look at different types of research and stuff like that, a lot of um, uh, defense-oriented uh, companies, they claim that delta V, the threshold for injury is at five miles per hour, whereas different studies by different uh, researchers in real-world real world, uh, real world uh, collision factors say that uh, people on average begin to suffer injuries at 3.5 nine miles per hour. Now, when you look at 3.9 miles per hour, five miles per hour, or even like say eight, nine miles per hour, it doesn't seem like much, right? But in your, if you can imagine, if you will, you're walking, you know, a slow, steady paced walk is about three miles per hour. And say there's a beam right here, it's thickly padded, and I'm walking three miles per hour, and I hit my head on it, and my head snaps back, would you get injured? Me, I don't think I would. I'm fairly healthy. I don't have any uh, pre-existing conditions. But uh, how about your grandmother? Would they get injured? Okay. How about a slow-paced jog? Now, keep in mind, a less than 10-mile-per-hour collision with zero damage to both cars is typically under uh, uh, 10 miles per hour. That will generate about a 6 delta V. Okay. So, say I'm doing a brisk walk. Okay. That's about 4 miles per hour, right? Brisk walk, brisk walk. Here's the, uh, the ledge thickly padded. We're not talking about forehead injury. I'm just talking about the head snapping back, and I'm not even talking about the jerk that occurs after that. But at four miles per hour, brisk walk, you hit your head, your head snaps back, would you get injured? Well, how about a slow-paced jog? Okay, a slow-paced jog is about five miles per hour, right? So imagine if you're jogging at five miles per hour, and here's that beam again, you hit your head and you snap back, would you get injured, right? Most of the time, when you start to see damages on, on um, on a vehicle, right? Just when you just start to see damage on a vehicle, that usually exceeds 10 miles per hour delta V. So 
How about a sprint? Okay, twice the speed of a slow-paced jog, right? Twice a sprint, right? So if you're running, here's that beam. You hit the head, and your head snaps back. Ask yourself, would you get injured? I mean, it's almost a no-brainer, right? So unfortunately, the way they designed the car, it's a trade-off. Once again, it's a two-edged sword. In slower and lower collision type of impacts, yes, the person is going to end up suffering more injury because all that energy is not transferred into crush. And it's 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 it's, uh, it's trans catapulted into the occupant, creating more jerk. But in higher impact collisions, yes, the car will absorb the energy and the person will survive. You know, so yeah, we get more injured in the car accident, but at least we get to live. So, you know, kudos for the engineers. Uh, right. Um, one more thing I want to do, and then I want you to show us some videos, and then we've got a question that somebody wrote in, and then we'll let everybody go. Um, G-forces. This is another buzzword that we get, we hear uh, in popular culture. Uh, in my world, I hear it in, in uh, personal injury litigation. How does that relate uh, to, to what you're talking about? Right. So that's um, G-force. Basically, in order to calculate G-forces, you have to first know what the delta V is. Because the delta V is the actual change in velocity of the vehicle. But then you use delta V to eventually calculate what the acceleration rate or the g-force of the occupant was or how much uh, g-force were induced into the occupant. So um, that's basically what we have to uh, uh, analyze. So, you know, you know, in the world of accident reconstruction, you know, accident reconstructionists are the ones that will go about analyzing the, uh, the damage factors to determine uh, what the delta V is. And once you establish delta V, then you use a series of different, very simple um, uh, calculations to figure out what the, how much G-forces were induced into the occupant. Gotcha. And does does it translate nicely, just like they want the delta V values to translate nicely? Is it like XG's injury beneath that number, no injury? Does it work like that? Well, of course not. I mean, we're all doctors, and we, we, we understand that there's a human factor. I mean, myself versus someone that's... Uh, much older or myself versus someone that already had a series of uh, uh, injuries to the neck and they're, they have higher risk factors. So the thing is, you know, trying to put a norm or quote-unquote threshold for when a person gets injured, that just, you know, they can do that in the world of research, you know, because they want to create, you know, certain numbers. But in the real world with human beings, everyone has to be analyzed or diagnosed and examined individually. But we also hear sometimes in PI that, you know, a sneeze will generate 5Gs or a stepping off of a curb or sitting down on a chair will generate, you know, 10Gs momentarily. So, and obviously those things don't injure people. So how come this accident, which only generated, you know, 6Gs, how come, or, you know, momentarily or something, how did that injure this person or one, you know, 2Gs or something like that? What, what, why is that ridiculous? Obviously I'm smiling, but why is that ridiculous? Yeah, actually, that is very ridiculous. And the main reason why is because the parameters of how the forces are induced are, is completely different. Like, for example, when I'm sneezing or stepping off a, a curb or sitting in a chair, the forces are all up and down, right? It, it, it's, um, but it's vertical, right? But in a car accident, everything's moving, so it's horizontal. It's actually moving, right? Number one. Uh, so, the, so, the, so the forces that are induced into the occupant versus someone sitting or sneezing is completely different. So in the world of research to, to say that they're the same thing, it's really, it's utterly ridiculous, number one. Number two, um, 
there's things that happen, especially like in a rear end collision, that does not happen to a person sneezing. So, for example, if you guys just all do this very slowly, because I don't know who's out there that's watching this, but I want you to experience this and know what it feels like when you're rear ended. The first thing happens in a rear end collision is you get shear forcing, where the car pushes into you and your neck goes straight back. Now, put your chin all the way in, and from here, move your head slow. And I mean, I mean it. Go slowly. Put your chin all the way in. Move your head slowly back. You'll feel that pain. You can feel that 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 the, the pain on your shoulder in your neck area. That does not happen when you're sneezing. Who puts their chin in and then sneezes, right? Who puts their chin in and sits and plops into a chair? Who puts their chin in and steps off a curb? Right. And you know what? In the study that you're relating to, it's called the Allen study, and it's a notorious study that defense experts use for a long time. They're kind of weeding off of that because they're it's getting so exposed. But um, you know, a quote unquote researcher, a learned person that's supposed to be, if they are, I'm not sure, but um, if they are a biomechanist or an expert in biomechanics, to try to compare and say apples and oranges is the same thing, you know, it's just disingenuous. Yeah, I would agree to that. So we have only a couple of minutes left. I wanted to give you at least, you know, 60, 90 seconds if you had a video you wanted to show and you could share your screen. Um, so, and then we have one question that uh, that I want to make sure I ask you that uh, a doctor wrote in beforehand. Okay, so this, I'm going to share the screen. I just want to explain to you, this is a collision at 8.2 miles per hour. These videos can actually be purchased by, uh, from the Spine Research Institute. It is copywritten. So, um, but I'm showing it for educational purposes and I'm not capitalizing on this whatsoever. So this is fine. Um, 8.2 miles per hour with a delta V of 6.3 and there's zero damage to both cars. Let me see that again. 8.2 How much damage does that look like? That scratch was already there to begin with. So, so you got to ask yourself, see that one more time. It sounds like the type of, it looks like the type of collision that would get labeled a missed case. Right, absolutely. Now keep in mind, of course, you know, when you do this type of research, you have to make sure that they have no risk factors, they're healthy, there's nothing predisposing them to any type of injury. And this was only 6.3 uh, uh, Delta V, right? So, you know, to a healthy individual, you know, they might not get injured, which is fine, right? But how about older people or people with uh, significant health issues, right? Uh, you know, they are highly prone to getting injured. And this, the research that Dr. Croft did from the Spinal Research Institute actually showed that the, all the volunteers that were involved in this, they did post-study uh, six-month and 12-month interviews. More than 70% of them started developing headaches, neck pain, uh, and issues like that without any causational factors in between. Well, Doc, I, I appreciate you showing me that. I want to ask you one quick question with the last two minutes that we have here. Doctor, uh, a doctor wrote in, Dr. Fantasia wrote in this morning and asked uh, how you defend against cases where, uh, you know, your, your, your 
party was rear-ended, but the insurance company is trying to make the claim that uh, that they were actually a middle car and that they rear-ended the car in front of them before they got rear-ended. Right. So this is a topic that comes up quite often, and this has to do with the accident reconstruction portion of it. But keep in mind, if there's two cars and say there's another car right here, and you're in the or whichever car that you're analyzing, what happens is this: if you're in the middle car, okay, and that's apparently the patient um, of the doctor that wrote the question. Someone rear-ends the middle car. Now, when you get rear-ended and you're at a stop, right, what's going to happen? You, you, you accelerate forward, right? When you accelerate forward, what happens? Your vehicle pitches upward, okay? So you need to analyze the damage of the, of the car that's in the very, very front. Because if this car accelerated and it pitched upward and the damage is above where the bumper heights are, because you can get the specifications of the vehicles, so when, when, when they're in the acceleration phase and the vehicle pitches up and it hits higher from where the normal uh, heights are, then you know that he was hit first. The middle car was hit, accelerated forward, and went down. Um, if, he, if the middle car was the one that hit the front car first, typically they're hitting the brakes, they slam on the brakes, and what happens when you slam on the brakes? It pitches down, right? But once again, the damage will be more below. So, Doctor, thank you so much. I got. We're, we are out of time completely. If if uh, any of the chiropractors have follow up questions, where can they find you? Uh, they can email me at uh, doctor dr period choi at atlashealthclinic.com. That is so nice of you, Doctor Choi. Thank you so much for being here with us and answering all of these questions and explaining what you do. Uh, and I appreciate it very very much. And we will see all these doctors hopefully on the next call uh, in one month. Sean, anything? Yeah. Uh, doctors, you can find this uh, material right on our website, johnsteel.com. We also have a new cha uh, channel on, that this guy fixed up on uh, YouTube called the Sean Steele Law Firm. Uh, we got a lot of funny videos. Uh, his are funny, mine are serious. But we try to keep new, new uh, tips on litigation under five minutes. So 30 minutes uh, with Dr. Choi is outstanding. Next time, we're going to have a few more animations. Dr. Choi, we're not done with you. You've got a lot of information. You've got a lot of... For, for you to be, uh, this this is another aspect of the growth and maturity of chiropractic, and we need uh, we need smart people like this in our lives. Thank you, doctors. Thank you, Dr. Choi. Thank, Thank you so much.